Good morning. So, as Ryan said, my name is Stefan. Um, I, I serve alongside him and Andre on the eldership team. And you may not have seen me for the last couple of weeks. Um, and that is because we just had a, a new addition to our family, a baby boy called um, Daniel. Yeah, and, uh, and thankfully and um, very grateful that everything went well and he's doing well. Um, we are sleeps a little bit disrupted, but really nothing to complain about. Um, yeah, and I just, I can't let this opportunity go by to just thank um, everyone in this community uh, for one, for just the messages of support and, and encouragement. Um, but also, yeah, also in very practical ways, um, providing meals for us, for our family. It's, yeah, I think when you're caught up in like not sleeping a lot and a, a lot going on, um, you can easily like not realize how much it actually means to not have to spend time preparing meals and often. And so just from me and my family, really thank you and we appreciate you. And also just the encouragement, it's such a testimony to, uh, to the people um, also outside of the church. Um, I know that with Luke's birth, my mom was almost like taken aback. Like, what? People are just bringing meals to you? And then when she was coming now for Daniel's birth, she was saying, like, is the church going to organize food again? <laughs> yes, but you're also going to make food when you're here. So tone it down. Um, cool. So, yeah, that's just a little bit about where we're at. So, so what, I, what I wanted to say is, like, um, Maybe there's a couple of new people in the church that I've not been able to meet in the last couple of weeks, not being here. I really am keen to get to know you. Um, if I don't chat to you today, please come over and introduce yourself. Um, yeah. Cool. So as Ryan said, we're currently in a, in a series on in 2 Corinthians. Um, and just as encouragement, when I prepped for this, the first message I did, um, I just got reading and I read 1 Corinthians because I thought it would be valuable to know 1 Corinthians before we actually start preaching on 2 Corinthians. And then I read 2 Corinthians and then I went on and I read, I'm not sure exactly the order, but I read Galatians and then, then I read uh, Colossians. And it's just so good to for me to have seen the consistency across all those letters of Paul's message. And for some of the churches that he wrote to, um, it was more positive. Uh, the Corinthians are probably one of the more negative uh, like letters where he had to address a lot of things in the church and people actually slandering him. But in every letter to every church, it just comes up again. It's like, listen, this is, this is what it's about. It's about this message of this person, Jesus Christ. And it's about living in a way that pleases and honors him. Uh, it's about him. So whether he was praising a church while they're living or whether he was reprimanding them, in all of those books came back to, to the message of Jesus, which we're going to talk about again today. So last week, um, Andre shared with us on what Paul had to say about uh, our temporary dwelling. And Paul's speaking about like that this body that we have now on earth is like a tent. You know, it's it's okay, but it's not great. It's temporary. Um, 
but that there is an eternal dwelling or eternal house that awaits us. And I want to start this morning section by reminding us of the last couple of verses out of that section that Andre preached on. Because I think it links in nicely with the beginning of uh, the next section. So, um, is this is this my slides that was missing? Okay, I was trying to figure out the excuse because they told me the slides were missing. So, but it's there now. If you have your Bibles here, I really encourage you to just open to two Corinthians, two Corinthians five. And as I mentioned, we're going to start by just reading a couple of verses from actually from last week's section, which is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 to 10. It should also be on the screen. So Paul says, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul is convinced that we will all stand before Christ one day, or he says before the judgment seat of Christ one day, and we will receive what is due us, whether it be for the good things that we have done or the bad things that we have done. And I want us to take a moment this morning and reflect on this. If we stand before Jesus today and he pays us what we deserve, what would we get? What would our dues be? He says we all will pay our dues one day for the good and the bad that we've done. Will we get praises of well done, my good and faithful servant? Or what will Jesus have to say? about the bad that we've done. And I really want us to just take a minute or two and just reflect on this now. We're just going to take a time to be quiet um, and then I'll pray for us. But let's really take some time and, and think if, if you were to stand before Jesus today and you have to give an account for your actions. Me too, by the way. I also have, a, have to give an account for my actions. What would Jesus have to say about the way that we have lived our lives and the way that we are living our lives? Um, so try and, yeah, try and picture that now. Maybe just close your eyes. Jesus, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we would hear and see truth, uh, that we would not um, hear and see what Stefan wants us to hear and see or what Common Ground Weinberg wants us to hear and see, but that it would be 
your truth. And that through your spirit, Lord, you would um, make it clear and make it plain to us to see. Um, I pray, Lord, that, that you would use the words that I speak and that you would use your scripture um, just to guide us in truth, Lord. Yeah, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, so it feels a bit heavy, I think, when we, uh, you may not agree with me, but it feels a bit heavy when we consider having to stand before Jesus one day and give an account for our actions. It's a little bit of an uncomfortable thought, I guess. Um, and some of us might already know the, uh, the answer, and some of us might already know why we maybe don't feel so uncomfortable about standing in front of God one day. But I think that's a good way to start, and we'll see now as we get into the scripture. So we're going to be going through the verses, more or less verse by verse, and um, yeah, and just expanding on some of it. Um, the title for the message is Paul's Ministry of Reconciliation and Motivation. So Reconciliation and motivation, and it's going to be out of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11 to 21. So if you're not there yet, please just open there, and then we'll get going. So the scripture, or the title in my Bible at least, says the ministry of reconciliation. It starts with verse 11, where it says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. And we may glance over these first verses um, and not give much thought to what Paul is actually saying here. However, it's such an important verse that actually kind of sets the tone for what, what is to come after that. So why does Paul think we know what it is to fear the Lord? And I would argue that it is because of the verses we read earlier. And we're going to read them again. We just read them. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So this must be what Paul is referring to. He is saying that we know we will stand before a holy God one day, and we will give an account for all of our actions. And in this, there is a, what we would say is a healthy fear of the Lord. Because we know we are going to be standing in front of a perfect God, a holy God, a God that is just. We want to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to Him. We want to be able to stand there and and feel like we've lived our lives in a way that is pleasing to Him. So let's talk about fear, because this is not something that we like to hear. And granted, it is also something that we say, you know, we shouldn't fear. As, as Christ followers, we say that fear is actually the opposite of love. And, and I think we sometimes take that and say, yes, as Christ followers, we shouldn't live in fear, but that doesn't mean that there isn't healthy forms of fear that um, we actually need to consider. So, for example, 
if I put on my seatbelt when I get into the car, am I living in fear? Or is that a healthy kind of fear? Saying like, listen, something, someone might drive into me, so I'm going to put on my seatbelt. But then I'm not going to go driving and be anxious and stressed. Because when is someone going to drive into me now? But I've made a decision based on a, something possible that's possible um, that can happen. Or when I stop at a red light, am I living in fear? And that's why I stop at a red light? Or are we as Christ followers saying, well, you know, because as Christ followers we shouldn't fear, I'm just going to drive over the red light and nothing will happen to me. That's not wise. So bad fear debilitates us. Bad fear makes it difficult for us to make decisions. Bad fear means we, we're walking around with anxiety and stress and around every corner we're expecting the worst. But there's healthy fear that makes us, helps us to make good decisions. Like not jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. We can't do that and say, well, you know, as Christ followers, we shouldn't fear. So I'm just going to jump. But still, of what possibly could happen, it's a healthy fear of falling to your death. And you're making a good decision, a wise decision based on that. There's a scripture that says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it is good for us to fear the Lord. It's a good thing to consider our actions and how they will influence my standing in front of God one day. That influences, that fear, that healthy, good fear of the Lord makes me make better decisions. It makes me make wiser decisions. Because we know the truth of who God is and that we will stand before Him one day, we will make better decisions. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 32, he says, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In another section, he goes on to say, if there is only hope in Christ for this life on earth, then we are to be pitied the most. And there's this idea that if there's no resurrection, if there's no life after this life, then why live the way that we live? Why try and please God? Why consider our actions and how they are perceived by God or how they influence other people? Why serve the church? Why make sacrifices for God and for God's people? If there's nothing after this life and if we don't stand in front of God one day, then this is silly. Why are we gathered here this morning if we are only living for this life? We should then actually be taking on what the world says we should. We should be doing everything we can to squeeze the most out of this life. All of our decisions we, we should be making to enjoy now. We should be spending our money for us now because if there is no resurrection, if there is no life after this life, 
then why would we not do that? Why would we not only take care of ourselves and of our family? But we don't do that. Because a lot of us here at least believe that we will stand before God one day. Believe that there is a resurrection after death. And we believe that we will give some sort of account for our actions or our lack of actions. And knowing that, or believing that, that fear of the Lord helps us to make good decisions and live lives. But it does not end there. The verse goes on to say, we try to persuade others. Because of what we know and what we believe, because of this fear we have of the Lord, we try to persuade others. Of what? Well, firstly, we try to persuade them for one, that they should fear the Lord in a good, healthy way. Not in a way that, that think of, of Adam and Eve, not in a way that says, I'm hiding from the Lord because I'm scared of him, but in a way that influences my daily decisions and the decisions I make in this life. To consider, we, we want to persuade people to consider the fact that whether they believe it or not, they are going to stand in front of God one day. So that's on that, that section, and we'll, we'll get back into persuading others. But then it goes on to say from, still in the same scripture, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for men. So people were saying all sorts of things about Paul. They were saying he's weak, he's crazy, he's double-minded. Um, and here Paul is saying, if people say we are out of our mind, then kind of like, so be it, because they are making judgment on what is seen only and not on what is in the heart. Even though people are saying that they are out of their mind, it is for God that they are saying and doing the things that they are doing. And they cannot help themselves, he goes on to say. And he goes on to say why they cannot help themselves. For Christ's love compels us. For Christ's love compels us. So even, it's, it's a sense that maybe we do even, we don't want to appear crazy in front of any, everyone, but we can't help it. The love of Christ compels us because we are convinced, this is from verse 14, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. So even though it will cause great suffering and persecution, and even though people will question his authority, Paul's authority and power and call him crazy and out of his mind, he is compelled by Christ's love to do what he does and to say the thing he says. And Paul goes on to here give a short explanation of Christ's sacrifice for all who would believe in him. You see, the wages for sin, the penalty for sin, if that's a better word to use, the consequences of sin is death. And here Paul explains that he is convinced, he is convinced that Jesus paid that price for all who would believe in him. And all who believe in him have actually died with him. So through Christ, those wages, the penalty, the consequences of sin is paid. But just as Christ was resurrected to life, so all who believe and died with Christ now live with Christ. They are new creations. And Paul believes that this act of sacrifice on, that Jesus did was so significant that those who now live with Christ should not live for themselves, but should live for the one that died for them and was raised again. The old has gone and the new is here. And when we read this, we can't help but think that Paul has first-hand experience of this, first-hand experience of being changed, being made a new creation. He says that he, they, including himself, once regarded Christ in this way. He he once looked at Jesus in a worldly manner. And when we read of his life before his ministry, we see that that's true. He looked at Jesus and he saw a troublemaker. He saw a rebel. He saw a liar. He saw a blasphemer. And Paul thought he was doing God's church a service by persecuting the Christians. Until that day that Jesus appeared to him and said, why are you persecuting me? And somehow Paul became a new creation. Paul went from someone who was killing the people in the church to someone who was now promoting the same message that he was trying to stop. If that's not a radical change of someone's life, being made from a old creation to a new creation, then I don't know what is. If you believe that you are too sinful for God to actually save you, then go and read the things that Paul did. Some of us might remember the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was the, like the first martyr that we read about. 
And he was stoned because he was the, the, the Pharisee, the people that he was speaking to, they didn't enjoy hearing what we believe to be the truth. And they actually stoned him. And Paul was there. It says they put their, he was stole, stole him. They put their coats down at his feet while they were stoning Stephen. So Paul doesn't just write this and say, you guys, you guys, this is for you. You, are go- you can be made new. Paul had firsthand experience of this. He was made new. Now, what about us? What about those of us sitting here who say that we are Christ followers, that we believe in the, the life and the sacrifice and the res- resurrection of Jesus? Can we look at our lives before we came to Christ? And is it clear that we are new creations? Now, my um, motivation in this is not to make anyone doubt whether they are new creations in Christ or not. I'm hoping that for most of us, as it is for me, it's an encouragement. Because for me, when, when I doubt, I look back at my life before I came to Christ. And I look at the things that I desired, and I look at the things that I wanted to do, and the things that I did. And to me, it is clear that God has made me new. He has changed me. He has changed me to want to do things differently. He has changed me to want to live a life that is pleasing to Him. And to me, that's encouragement. So if you're a Christ follower, I would encourage you also to look at your life and say, have I been made new? And like I said, my motivation is not to have anyone doubt. Um, And I honestly won't be able to tell you if you have been made new or not. But maybe maybe you're unsure, but why not then make it a thing before God? Why not go before God and and say, Lord, have, have I been made new? Have I been made a new creation? Finally, on this section, I want to come back to when Paul says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. When I read this the first time, that stood out for me the most. And, and I just was struck again by how that's almost the only way that we look at people around us. We almost only look at people from a worldly point of view. We make, even without realizing it, we make judgments on the way that people appear. And we see, oh, that person uh, must be a bad person. Without even making really a decision to do that, we do that. Paul says here, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. No one from a worldly point of view. Paul believes that those who are raised in Christ cannot look at people the same as they did before they came to Christ. So we pray that God would give us eyes to see people as they really are. People made in the image of God. Some of them lost. Some of them deceived. Some of them desperately in need of a savior. Some of them desperately in need to be reconciled to their relationship with God. 
go on from verse 18. All this that we've spoken about is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So let's start by looking at this section by having a a good understanding of what reconciliation means. What is it? What does reconciliation mean? What does it mean to be reconciled? So I think the first starting point is to be reconciled to someone implies that you have had a relationship with that person that was a in some ways at least a functioning good relationship. Like I can't be reconciled to someone that I've never met. Re-reconcile means that there was a relationship before and something happened. And now now we're not on good terms anymore. And now we have opportunity to be reconciled. Okay, so I hope that that's helpful in understanding the, the word reconciliation. So, I think this is a good example. Maybe I'm completely missing the mark, but I think the the, the prodigal son is, is a good example of reconciliation. So, in the story of the prodigal son, we let's assume that the father and the son had a good relationship. So, the son was staying with the father, and there came a point where he wasn't happy there anymore, and we know that he then asked his father for his inheritance, and he left. And that leaving and how he was talking and how he said, you know, give me my inheritance, that obviously left uh, his father hurt. And what it caused was a broken relationship between the son and the father. And the son was off and he squandered his money. But at a point, the son comes to his senses and he returns to his father. And he's, he's going to his father and he's saying sorry for, for what he's done um, and that he wants to come back to his father's household. And his father accepts him back into the household and they are reconciled. So their relationship is restored. They probably still are going to have some chats about, you know, sort out those issues, but their relationship is restored. So, when it comes to what we're talking about, there was a time when humans were not enemies of God. Maybe before I say that, or just add to that, is, is to understand that if, if we are not with God, we are against God. There's no... There's no middle ground. There's no like, oh, I'm just neutral. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not against God, but I'm also not for God. I'm just here in the middle. There isn't that when it comes to God. So there was a time where people 
we were not enemies of God. And we know this when we read about God's intended design when he first created human beings. There was a time where humans used to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Is that not something that sounds so uh, attractive? Walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. But sin made us enemies of God. Thus Paul says, be reconciled to God. But the sad part is that we can't actually do that. We can't actually be reconciled to God out of our own. Unlike the story of the prodigal son, and unlike in our relationships here on earth, we can't fix that. We can't actually fix it by just going to God and saying, I'm sorry. It's, I know it sounds wrong to say that, but we can't fix that relationship. Why is that? Because the wages of sin is death. The consequences for sin, the, the penalty for sin is death. So we could go to God and say sorry, but because he's a just God, we would still need to die. Because God has said that the penalty for sin is death. But why would Paul tell us to be reconciled if we cannot be reconciled? Why would Paul encourage us to be reconciled to God if we cannot be reconciled to God? If me saying to God, I'm sorry, if me asking God for forgiveness isn't actually going to reconcile our relationship, my relationship with God, then why say that? And that's why the scripture that we are going to read is so encouraging and freeing. It says all this is from God. We've spoken about Christ dying for all. And then Paul goes on to say, and all that is from God. It is God who initiated the reconciliation. God was the one who initiated it. It's God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. It's God who is not counting people's sins against them. But how can God do that? How can a just God that says the wages for sin is death, how can a just God do that? How can he initiate reconciliation? How can he reconcile us to himself? And this is the point. This is the crux. This is the main event of any and every Bible story that you'll ever read. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So how are we reconciled? How are we reconciled to God? We are reconciled through Jesus. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin. The 
only one who could go to God and, and be blameless to be sin for us. The sin that we commit, the sin that we have to pay for, the sin that we can't pay for because we are, are blemished, guilty. Jesus paid for that sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So there's this fancy uh, word that they, or phrase that they use for it. They say it's, it's substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement means that I'm standing before a holy God, guilty. Every one of us here, guilty. The, you only have to ask yourself a couple of questions and you'll know that you will stand before God guilty. It doesn't matter if it's small or big or little or it was a year ago, you stand before God guilty. And Jesus is not guilty. Not in any way, not even a little bit. Jesus, some, I remember so clearly someone told me in Sunday school years ago, Jesus was also, Jesus also sinned a little bit, you know. He would also disobey his parents. No, that is, and I just thought like, oh, so it's fine then. If Jesus, I mean, if Jesus hid the broom, then I can probably do this. Jesus was without sin. No sin, not even a little bit. And as I stand here and I have to give an account for my actions, which we kind of still do, God sees the righteousness of God. God sees Jesus. God sees Jesus and Jesus has paid for my sin. So am I guilty in front of God? Yes. But through Jesus, who has paid the penalty, I don't have to pay the penalty because he's taken my place. And if you have put your trust in Jesus, if you have given your life to him, if you have died with him and are raised with him, he has paid for your sin also. And if you haven't, then I would encourage you to, to strongly consider it. If you believe there is a God and you believe that somehow we are going to give account for our actions, then I would say, why have you not put your faith and trust And all of that, all of that was to do what? All of that was to reconcile us to God. All of that was to fix the broken relationship, the relationship that was broken because of sin, the relationship that was severed because of sin, all of that was to be able to, to reconcile us back to God so that we can have a relationship with our Creator again, so that it can be restored to the way that it was intended to be. And this is good news. This is good news, and this is why we call it the good news. This is why we call it the gospel, the good news. Because of what Jesus has done, we have the opportunity to be reconciled to God. Each one of us, no one, no one can say that they don't have sin. 
each one of us has the opportunity to repent and believe and be reconciled to God. So we look back at this passage, we see that, that Paul says what he says and what he does, he does because he, we know he will stand in front of God one day and give an account for his actions, good and bad. It is for this reason that he tried to persuade others to be reconciled to God through what Jesus Christ has done. And he's compelled to do this, even when he faces opposition in many ways because of Christ's love that is demonstrated toward the unbelievers. Finally, on the point of reconciliation, we, as Christ followers, those of us that consider ourselves Christ followers, should always strive to reconcile broken relationships. It's God's heart for His people and their relationships. If God's heart is for reconciliation with us, there can't be relationships in our lives where we say, but God wouldn't want me to reconcile with that person. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that if we're in a close relationship with somebody, as Christ followers, we, we should be people who always strive for reconciliation. And maybe we, we initiate it and, we, and that person is not interested. That's not on you. But sitting here, we can't say, that's, that's a little bit too much. Not if we compare it to what God has done for us. God does not need to make reconciliation possible for us. But He does so because of His love and His grace towards us. And we should do the same. But what does the passage also say? We've spoken a lot about reconciliation. We're halfway there, don't worry. Except for saying to be reconciled to God. Caroline, I was just joking, don't worry. <laughs> Except for saying to be reconciled to God and how we are to do that and why we are able to be reconciled to God, it also says that, I'm going to look at three scriptures for us. And we've, we've, we've read them already, but I think our focus wasn't quite there. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And we spoke about this earlier, but it's worth doubling down on it. Those of us who are new creations in Christ should be living for Christ, for his glory and to make his name known. Paul believes that if we are alive with Christ, we should not be living for ourselves any longer. We should be living for him because he died for us and was raised again. And Paul believes that that is enough reason to be living for Christ. Verse 18 there says, God gave us. So he's obviously speaking about himself. He's speaking about the people that are on mission with him. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Does that exclude 
us that are Christ followers? I don't think so. I think it includes those of us that consider ourselves Christ followers. I think that this is for us as well. I think that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation as well. Verse 19 says, and he has committed to us, so again, talking about Paul and his team and the people that are on mission with him, to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And again, I would say that that us doesn't exclude us here today. I think it includes us that are consider ourselves Christ followers. God committed the message to Paul, to the Corinthians, and to us. We are God's ambassadors. In other words, we are representing God before others. Those that do not know God should be able to see and know much about God by looking and listening to us. He's ambassadors. We carry his name. We carry his message. We carry his ministry. Paul says that it is as though God is making his appeal through people, uh, through us, for people to be reconciled. God is appealing to people through us to be reconciled to him. We see in these 10 verses that the ministry and message is definitely one of reconciliation. But it is also one of mission. And as Paul motivates the Corinthians, he also motivates us this morning to spread the good news of reconciliation and that it's possible with God through what Jesus has done. Because we are raised with Christ, we should not live for ourselves, but for him. And I know that if I sat here listening to this today, I would feel some sort of pressure. I would feel some sort of weight. And I do, standing here, because I know that what I've just said, living a life for Christ, I don't always get that. And I'm careful to say that because I don't want people to say, well, if Stefan doesn't get it right, I don't have to even try. The point is, I bring it before God and I say, God, I know that this is what I'm supposed to do. I know that that I should be living for you. Will you change my heart so that everything I do is for you? Whether it be my day-to-day job, how does that look? And I ask God, what does that look like? Today, when I walk out and I go to school, and I'm a teacher, by the way, or I'm on the rugby field, what does it look like to be living for you, Lord? I know that many days I don't get it right. And I keep asking God, I keep asking Him for His Spirit, will you help me? Will you empower me? Will you guide me? Will you give me the ways and the words? Will you show me the opportunities and give me the courage to take them? That's often my prayer is that, God, the works that you've put on my path, help me see them. And when I see them, 
helping them with courage and with boldness to actually do that. So if you're feeling a little bit, as a Christ follower, like, how do I do that? Then ask God. Look at his word. Look at the, the, the testimony of, of his people. Uh, speak to each other. Let's encourage each other. Let's share, like, let's share how in our spaces we, we have the opportunity or how we found it to be helpful to actually share in such a fashion. So we're going to take two minutes and just do that. Let's just, that thought that you have now that's kind of bothering you, it feels like, this feels like a bit, let's just, but I'm just going to forget about it five minutes after the service. Take that now. Let's all take that and let's bring it before God. And let's ask God, what does it look like for us as Christ followers to be living for Him and not Christ? Let's do that Lord Jesus, we don't want to come to the end of our life and realize we've missed the point. I pray for, yeah, maybe people here that are, are still considering whether the claims um, that the Christian faith make are true or not. And so I just pray that you would work in their hearts, um, you would be gracious to them and yeah, and give them answers to the questions. And I, I pray for those of us that are Christ followers. And I, yeah, I really just pray that you would help us, Lord. Just like we are not able to reconcile ourselves to you, uh, just like we are not able to save ourselves, um, yeah, we also need you to help us know what it looks like to live for you. Yeah, so I just pray that your spirit would work powerfully through us, that you would that you would speak with us, Lord, that you would show us the way. Yeah, the right way, Lord. Your way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.